Hey, there we go. Welcome to Tech Chat Tuesdays, number 65 for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. I'm Ken Rimple, joined by Sujan Kapadia. Hey, guys. And I also have here with us our guest for this week, Keith Gregory. Hey. Hey, folks. Yep. Um, and so uh, just before we get started, let me uh, share my screen here. Uh, I wanted to bring up a couple things, you know, typical housekeeping and, and information for everybody here. So first things first. Um, if you go to Chariot on YouTube, the youtube.com slash Chariot Solutions, you will find a bunch of playlists, uh, one of which is, of course, this one, which is, if you didn't find it through there, uh, is the uh, Tech Chat Tuesdays playlist. And all of our 65 episodes of that are there. Uh, we also have a lot of our shows, in fact, pretty much all of our shows in the last 12 years or so um, are up online. So all the Philly Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise Conferences uh, all of our offshoot conferences like Data IO and IoT Fusion and things like that are on there as well. So all of them free, no registration required. Uh, please use this; it's a great resource. We've got tons of amazing speakers from all of our years of running conferences, uh, for sure, that'll be useful to you. Um, the other thing is, as we get started, uh, our website, chariotsolutions.com, has a lot of good information about us. So, for example, in the services section, uh, we are primarily a software and uh, data engineering uh, and mobile application development company. So if you're looking for help in those areas, you can check out our services pages uh, in mobile application development, and regular application development, there's case studies. We also have uh, training and mentoring, which is what I run. And I wanted to announce uh, recently, we did a, a class on, um, let's see here, a class on modern Java. Um, because what we've been finding is people are starting to kind of find their way back to Java in many cases since Java has improved over the years. Um, and so if you're just getting back to using Spring or Java more recently, uh, JDK 20, 21 timeframe, the last time you touched it was probably seven or eight. This is a good course. So you can check that out at chariotsolutions.com slash training. We can do it online. We can come to you. You can come to us uh, any way you want to do that. Now, uh, in terms of content, uh, our blog, uh, you know, it is the summer, so we're slowing down just a little bit, uh, but we've got some good content here. So Recently, um, I did a talk, or, or when my training uh, used a lot of uh, REPL work to experiment with uh, yeah, Java kind of from a command line perspective from, from a read it out print loop. So I put a blog post up on how to do it since there were some trickinesses to setting it up. Um, you know, communicate with Spring Boot. Uh, there is a Spring shell for doing commands from Spring, and there's also the standard Java J shell. So I have a, an in-depth article on that. But one of the reasons uh, we brought Keith Gregory on today was to talk about Redshift and its execution plan. So he has a nice blog article called A Deep Dive on Redshift Execution Plans as well that you can check out after this show. So with that, I'm going to kind of step back. And uh, Sujan, do you want to introduce Keith and talk about and tee up his talk? Sure. Um, so welcome back, Keith. I know you've been a repeat guest member on the Tech Chat podcast. Uh, Keith Gregory is chariot. AWS practice and data engineering lead. Um, so I'm really excited for today's talk. Uh, SQL is a really powerful abstraction. And as Uncle Ben advised a young Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility. Today, Keith is going to help us take a peek underneath that SQL abstraction, specifically on Amazon Redshift, um, Amazon's big data warehouse as a service offering. You know, knowing how SQL actually executes can reveal a lot about performance issues. Um, and whether you're fully taking advantage, in this case, of a distributed cluster, there's different things you have to consider 
that if you spend most of your time uh, writing queries against a database running on a single node or on your laptop, um, there's patterns you've learned over time that may not necessarily apply to a distributed cluster. Um, interestingly, I think Keith um, has an inherent need for speed. He recently bought a motorbike. He used to or still does have a private pilot's license. I don't know if that's current or not. Um, and he's really into SQL query optimization. So uh, I think Keith is the right person to talk about this. <laughs> I've never heard it put that way, but that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> oh, thanks. I, uh, yeah, I'm not current. Uh, to be safe as a pilot, you have to fly an awful lot. Okay. And I just didn't have the time to do that. So thanks for the introduction. And to give some background, this blog post is really part of a series that looks about different approaches that you might take uh, towards managing in a data in a data lake, a data warehouse. And previous uh, posts in that series include included, how do you pick the right file format for your data lake uh, if you're using, say, Athena to do your queries? And a compar uh, performance comparison between Athena and Redshift. And then a talk that I gave uh, at a couple user groups and also will be a webinar, uh, Chariot webinar coming up on August 1st, is the physical design and a comparison of the differences between how Athena and Redshift actually manage their data and work with data. And kind of following on from that is, okay, once you understand how Redshift manages its data, how do you see if your queries really work with that data very well? So I gave one example actually in the talk that I'm just going to pop up on screen. Uh, so hopefully you can all see this. This is a typical big data query. And the idea is that you've got some clickstream data, which if you're not familiar with the term, whenever you go to a website, it's tracking what you do and uh, making it available. And it's a very high volume, useful thing uh, to be doing a data analysis. So let's say you have an e-commerce website. You might have an event every time that a person looks at a product. And that contains information about the product they looked at, uh, when they did it, if you, they're logged in or have uh, just a tracking ID, who they are. And then you might want to compare that to uh, adding those uh, items to their cart and say, all right, what are the products that people look at but don't add to their cart? And so this is a query that attempts to do this. You have two tables. One contains the product page events. One contains the add to cart events. They have uh, a user ID in common, product ID in common. So it's a, a pretty simple left join uh, between these two tables. Now, if you don't know how your data is stored, an execution plan can really give you a very good idea of what's happening. And this is, uh, I've edited it a little bit, little bit for clarity, but this is what happens when you take any query and put explain before it. Redshift will tell you what it's doing. And it looks a lot like Postgres. Redshift evolved from uh, the Postgres engine. So the, the key things in here are that I am doing a join between two tables. And at the middle of this, I don't think my pointer necessarily comes across, but at the middle of this, uh, uh, execution plan, it's telling me that I'm doing the join. It's a hash join, 
which is good. That's typically what you get for decision support queries. And that dsdis none means that it's not redistributing any of these tables. And again, this backs us up into the slides that came before about how Redshift uh, distributes data between the various nodes in a Redshift cluster. But basically, this is telling me that this is about as good a query as I can get from the execution plan. Uh, if it told me something like DS, DIS, both, what that means is that both of these tables, which have, uh, in this case, tens of millions of rows, I think 60 million product page views, 20 million uh, add to cart actions, are being redistributed and sent across the cluster, which is a very inefficient thing to do. So the execution plan basically lets you uh, figure out what Redshift is doing, figure out why your queries are running slowly, and gives you some hints towards making them more efficient. So before I stop sharing, Ken or Sujan, do you have any quick questions that you'd like to bring up based on this? Yeah, I mean, I think I was going to save this for later, but it may make sense here. So um, in this case, let's say it wasn't a distribution none, it was a different type of distribution you weren't expecting because the data wasn't on the node. Is there something you can do to alert yourself of that without having to run an explain plan every time, any metrics or CloudWatch things you can set up? Unfortunately, not really. Uh, Redshift does give you long-running queries if you go in the console. Uh, it'll show you all of your queries, and you kind of can see the ones that take a long time. And that's really the warning is, uh, should this query be taking five minutes to run? Okay. And depending, you start looking at the plan based on that and saying, all right, can I get this down to one minute, 30 seconds, 15 seconds even? Okay. Uh, so I guess the idea would be then, I mean, if you're... It, if you're developing something new, you're kind of create a test cluster first, try out things in there, understand the performance before you put something into production. Um, to be honest with you, most of the places that I've worked with Redshift, you test in production. And it's simply because to make tests valid, you need to have production scale data. So you can certainly bring up a development Redshift cluster but you need to have it at least similarly sized to your production cluster. And Redshift is not cheap. Uh, so normally you just write your queries uh, and run them in the production cluster. And if you're doing it well, I should say this back uh, 30 years ago when I was uh, managing a team of people doing decision support queries against a similar massively parallel database system. One of my rules was that you had to do your execution plan before you ran any query on the machine. Uh, because early 1990s, a query that was poorly written could quite literally take days to run rather than seconds or minutes. Yeah. Uh, so it's a good habit to get into. This is a dumb question. I'm assuming XN is always the prefix for any kind of step so XN merge, XN network, XN sort, XN are all like net, you know, layers or steps. Really good question. I have absolutely no idea yeah, what that means. Transaction. That could be. Could uh, be that too. Yeah. Right. Um, um, the other thing is, I noticed in the in the examples they have on the Redshift guide, I, I assume you stripped out all the performance data, which you're going to get to. Yes. Like and stuff. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and in the blog post I talk about that. So. What each of these nodes shows here, if you do the explain plan, is every node has three pieces of st three statistics with it. Uh, the cost, which is a 
basically a meaningless number. In fact, the Redshift documentation says it doesn't give you any real idea of what's going on, except as maybe a relative cost figure. And then more importantly, for some queries, the number of rows that Redshift thinks that it's going to be returning from that step, and the basically the width, the number of bytes per row. And Redshift is a columnar database. So if you're doing joins and doing queries, really to optimize your queries, you don't do a select star. You select the specific columns that you need, and then Redshift is able to only look at the physical disk blocks that hold data for those columns. So if you see a query that you think you're only doing a query with two or three columns and you see a width of 1,024 bytes, you know there's probably a problem buried in that query. And the when I say buried in the query, this here is a very simple query. A lot of the decision support systems that I've seen, this might be what's called a common subtable, uh, common table expression uh, or subtable query in an actual query that may have two, three, four, or even five such uh, subqueries similar to this. So it can be challenging to look inside the query and figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, you may be doing a select star from some at some point deep within a query that you're not expecting. And if you see a wide row count, row, uh, not row size, uh, column size, you should look to see that. Uh, similarly, number of rows. If we looked at these steps, it would say this at the very bottom, the sequential scan on add to cart, uh, it'll tell you it's going to be returning about 19 million rows. Uh, and that's what you should expect. Uh, the add to cart table has 19 million rows. The sequential scan on product page is 60 million rows. And after the join, I, I can't remember what the number is, but it should be far less. You have duplicate entries in there. If you see it coming out number of rows, far more. And worse, if you see it coming out as uh, 20 million times 60 million, you again know that you've got a problem in your query. So yes, but to understand what's happening, it's easier to strip off that statistical information. No further questions, Your Honor. Okay. So that's that's basically what the uh, that's basically what the uh, blog post is about, and I think I've been asked to turn that into a presentation uh, for a user local user group. So. Uh, I'm not sure when that will happen. Can I ask a couple random questions about Redshift and query performance, or are there other things you wanted to cover before that? No, no. Um, awesome. Um, so, you know, in the blog post, you you make an, a good observation about some cases you want to duplicate your data or have a column in all your tables that you want to join by. Like, I think you had mentioned the transaction or accounts table, for example, there wasn't a customer ID in the table. And if you don't do that, then you're causing a data to be, you know, sent over the network. If you're joining on customer ID and one of your tables doesn't have it. So like, why not just put it in, in the load step of your ELT pipeline? So it's there and allows your queries to perform better. Um, I'm assuming that in some cases you may go further than that. You're maybe duplicating tables or you may have two same tables partitioned differently because it's the same data, but you can have different query access pattern. So I guess my question is, 
since you can't be dry in every case, don't repeat yourself. How do you document, maintain that? Is this stuff that generally would go into something like DBT? So that's, that's a good question. And yes, um, you should have some sort of a data dictionary for your decision support database. Mm -hmm. And it's very helpful if your data dictionary also includes lineage to say where each piece of data in, that, uh, in the table comes from. So your ELT process or yeah, ELT, not ETL, um, probably has some way for you to document what's happening and why. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you have, uh, you have uh, just like a technical documentation inside your repository, your source code repository that lists all of the tables, says the purpose and has any little notes. DBT certainly, which is a tool that uh, lets you orchestrate queries against decision support databases, it gives you a lot of features for that. It encourages you to document your table models while you're building them. So I'll give you one example. This goes back to work um, at a financial services company where accounts were associated with people, but also with households. And each household had a unique identifier. Each person had a unique identifier. And you would join, depending on the needs of the analysis you were doing, you might join this to, based on either of those two columns. So that's a perfect example of a case where in a modern system where bytes are essentially free, you take the same identical data and you simply distribute it in two different ways. Okay. And then in your documentation, if you're using DBT, you would put in your model documentation that this table is intended for use when you join to this, otherwise um, use the table that you join by account. So okay. yes, and I think it's a key thing of tools that they do give you the ability to do this. Right. You wanna capture as much information about your transformations and about the final data as possible. I think I have two more questions, unless you wanted to interject with another question, uh, Ken. Okay. Um, Go ahead first. So uh, you mentioned in your talk that you gave at the recent meetup and then in this blog post, uh, you know, you can obviously look at CloudWatch metrics like CPU if you're seeing something, for example, in the leader node, if it's doing a lot more work than it should be doing. And I assume you can do the same for the compute nodes as well if there's data skew. Yeah. So I guess the next logical question for me is how do you appropriately size your Redshift instances? And I know this is not, <laughs> this is not part of the blog post, but it made me think about it. Okay. That's a question that might take us the next two or three hours. Well, then, yeah. Okay. So, so I'm, I'm going to go with the really simple answer, which is use Redshift serverless, which will automatically size disk storage. Uh, and then you can configure your Redshift cluster for how much compute based on what you see. Oh, uh, interesting. One of the things... I've become a fan of Redshift Serverless uh, over the past year or so since it's been out. Uh, it really, if you look at the numbers, it's an expensive way to run a Redshift cluster. Uh, 
but it gives you the benefit of scaling storage independently from compute. And at night when nobody's using it or more likely in the you know, mid afternoon uh, before your ELT jobs run, you're not using any capacity. So it, it's a challenge. Historically, I would say use the DC2 node type. The DC2 is, uh, I think, two CPUs, 15 gigabytes of RAM, and 160 gigabytes of attached disk, and just drive it based on how much data space your data takes up. But Redshift created the RA3 node type, uh, which separates compute and storage. And in some cases, I think that may be completely valid, uh, but I like the serverless approach better. Okay. Also, aren't you kind of like giving up the, the having to physically take your time to manage this thing and care and feed it in terms of its scaling and sizing? So that's like you're trading person time for optimization by the service. You're at the present time, Redshift serverless, you have to specify how many processing units it brings up when you write when you run queries. Okay, so is uh, it is it it's uh, oh per query or or for the time it's running? For the time it's running, okay. uh, so it doesn't scale like you would think. Yeah, it doesn't scale the number of processing units. Some of the documentation makes me think that it was originally planned to do that, but looking <laughs> at the actual APIs. I see nothing for scaling, so I think that may be a feature that's coming in the future. Oh, uh, and that would make sense, because you bring up the... Serverless splits out the idea of a Redshift cluster into two parts. You have the namespace, which contains all the tables and data, and you have the workspace, I think is their term for it. Uh, there's so many overloaded terms that contains the processing units and actually has an endpoint. Okay. So... Yeah, right now you say for this workspace, and it's a one-to-one -one connection, whereas I also have this feeling that that separation means that at some point in the future, they may let you um, have one workspace that has, say, eight units for you running your analytics and 64 units, and they both work with the same namespace. Or maybe their plan for that is just to use the data sharing to support that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I have no inside line to what the Redshift team is doing. <laughs> You'll have to go find them when we go up to AWS. Uh, what is it? The Summit. AWS Summit in New York, go which is next them. week. Yeah, we should probably talk about that a little bit in this yeah. one, one final question um, before we move on to other topics. So other beyond your inherent need for speed, what drove you to look into this or write this blog post? Was there a common error or any pattern you've seen on production Redshift clusters? I don't think it was an anti-pattern so much as, and I, I kind of riff on this a little bit in the talk, but physical design of looking at how data is stored on a database and looking at how queries work is not something that most people are familiar with doing. So in some of the clients that have used Redshift, uh, part of my job has been talking to them about their queries. And uh, one client in particular, which kind of separated out the data science team, which was writing the queries from the data engineering team, which was putting the data in place, uh, I set up a weekly office hours uh, where 
anybody could uh, I'd just go on a, a chat and anybody could join and talk about what they were thinking of. Oh, interesting. And uh, sometimes I'd, if I saw something, you know, looking at like CloudWatch logs and looking at the query view, that's that's kind of more than a need for speed. It's a need to know what's happening. Gotcha. Even as a software developer, I take an unhealthy uh, an unhealthy interest in monitoring and telemetry. But okay. at any rate, so we'd have the office hours, and some days I'd suggest to people, hey, you really should join me today. Would a data scientist and a data engineer ever attend the same one, like join together? Um, yeah, people from the team. That's awesome. Yeah, that's it, good. I think it was a great way to uh, to communicate. And you know, again, going back to my experiences as a manager, one of the big things I did with my team was our weekly meeting, where it was not at all talking about our workload. Well, I shouldn't say that. It it wasn't a planning style meeting, it was uh, talk about what you've been doing this week and things that you didn't expect or need solutions that you came up with. Cool. I have a nerdy question for you. So being a relational database weenie for many years on a lot of different platforms and knowing index tuning, you know, and the concept of covering queries, now we're talking about a columnar database. Mm -hmm. So the thing you had mentioned to me, and, again, and this is more of my neophyte in this world question. So you're talking about it's like some access patterns. You basically put two keys together as two columns in a, a table, so to speak, so that you can make the connection between various types or like that's part of your path. What kind of indexing do you have where basically is it more designing a column collections the right way? Uh, none from what you think <laughs> of as an index. Good. All right. So you have the distribution for Redshift specifically, you have the distribution key, which says that all rows from all tables that have the same value in the di distribution key field. And it doesn't matter, you know, you might have, you might have a accounts table that has an ID field and then a transactions table that has an account ID field. Doesn't mm -hmm. matter that the columns are named differently. If those two columns are set as a distribution key for their respective tables, it means that the rows that have that field value, and I separate a field as an intersection of a row and a column, yeah. uh, that have the same value will end up on the same node. Okay. So that's almost like an index, but it isn't really. Uh, the yeah. other thing that Redshift gives you is it lets you specify how rows in the table, the different values are sorted. So you can specify, and I, I recommend just using timestamp as a single sort unless you know that you have a different need. Mm -hmm. uh, so Redshift is able to know that it only needs to look at the blocks corresponding to the, the timestamps that you've specified. Okay. So fundamentally different way of accessing data, of yes. course. Yes. So it's, and like, that's, it's a query execution plan which all the relation databases have them, but you really have a totally different way of fetching things. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as I call out in my talk, people who come from a transactional background, their biggest fear is to do a table scan. Yes. Because right? I saw a table scan, I heard millions of rows, I thought, bad, you know. <laughs> That's how decision support queries work. And, and the example that I give for that 
in the talk is that you might think of a banking application, okay? And you log into your bank account. It's pulling information about uh, just the accounts that you control, two, three, four, whatever. Uh, then you go to a specific account. It's looking at the, uh, the transactions, the last month's transactions for that account, which a few dozen for your business account, a few hundred, not a lot of data, right? You may have hundreds of millions of transactions per year for your entire banking system, but any given person going in is only going to be re retrieving a few of them. By comparison, a decision support query is saying, find me all of the customers who had transactions greater than $10,000 in the last month. Right. right. For Fast compliance. Money. Yeah. And that has to scan a big chunk of your transaction table. If you've got it uh, within the in Redshift, if you've got it uh, sorted by the transaction date, it's not so much. Uh, mm -hmm. If you do something like Athena, where you really have, yeah, okay, outside of partitioning, you don't have a lot of control over what each file does, it may be scanning thousands of files in your data lake. Right. So the key of that last talk and the upcoming webinar is to say, think about how your data is stored. Uh, Redshift and, and Athena are completely different and you have different knobs to turn. So in that example you just provided, if you're always, most of your queries are like, okay, give me something for this month. Would you be partitioning by, by like a date, by month, year? Um, if I'm using Athena, yes. Uh, okay, but not Redshift. Well, Redshift has a sort. It doesn't really have partitioning. You can simulate partitioning. Okay. Um, I don't know anybody who does. Oh, interesting. But okay, so that's why it's called a distribution key and not a partition key. Right. Okay. You're saving right. IOs, but you're not necessarily doing the same thing, right? Because you're, you're grabbing multiple things with the same distribution key in one hit, I would hope where you can. Right. Yeah. So again, everything's based on table scans. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah. I, sh I should have some slides to demonstrate this, but I'd be jumping all over my presentation. Yes. Uh, Redshift simply distributes it. Redshift distributes its data on multiple nodes in the Redshift cluster based on the red, the distribution key. And is sorts the rows on each node according to the sort key. Right. So when you write a query that says uh, join transactions and accounts where transaction timestamp uh, greater than 2023-07-01, if you're sorting by the transaction timestamp, Redshift knows that it only needs to look at certain number of rows from the transactions table yeah, it's distributing that query, running that same query to select those rows on every node. And then it's taking the rows that it selects that meet that criteria of timestamp and joining them to the account table based on the account ID. And assuming that you've distributed the transactions by account ID, that join can take place in completely in parallel on the same node. Gotcha. Okay. If you've distributed your transactions by transaction ID by its primary key, which coming from a relational background, you might think that's the appropriate thing to do. Right. And I think a lot of people think of, I think initially when people look at this, they think of sharding 
and partitioning your data across the cluster, which is very different than distributing well, what you're talking about to a certain degree. To a certain degree. Um, sharding is actually a good way of looking at it because with a typical sharded database, you actually can't join th between things on different shards. Uh, Redshift, if you think of it as shards, Redshift will say, well, I have the data distributed on this one key, but I need it distributed on the other. Take every single row that I've selected out of the transaction table and send it to the node where it can be joined to the account table. Okay. And that, that can be really expensive, or it can be not too bad at all. Uh, one of the things I point out in the blog post is in the specific example I'm using, which I call out in the beginning, is not really big data. You know, 60 million rows joined to 20 million rows isn't big data. Yeah. Would have been 10 years ago. Today, I can do it on my laptop. But with that small amount of data, if it does have to redistribute, it's not going to take too much time. But if you're redistributing a billion rows, which uh, this one client had actually, their clickstream data was several billion rows, uh, you redistribute that, you're paying a big price. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. So I'm going to put up uh, on the screen here. Uh, we just put, uh, we just posted the link in the show notes uh, in the chat uh, for your upcoming August 1st talk. Let's get physical optimizing big data. So this is this is really kind of you talking through these access patterns and ways you optimize your configuration of your tables to get that done, right? Exactly, and it's comparing specifically Redshift and, and Athena. Athena. Awesome. That's great. Is the theme of the one that works a lot on like S3 files? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's either like the S3 file mechanism or Redshift structures over there. Yeah. But I don't know anything about, so we'll start there. Your your blog post on the performance of Athena, Redshift Spectrum, Serverless, and Redshift, um, at least to me, was pretty eye-opening. I wasn't expecting Athena to kind of come out on the top along with uh, Redshift. That's Yeah, the... Um... The theme of my talk on physical data design is the idea that uh, Seymour Cray was wrong. Oh. And if you remember Seymour Cray, he designed some of the world's most powerful computers from through the 70s and into the early 80s by basically throwing a lot of dedicated hardware at the problem. And some of those computers are also, you know, from a industrial design perspective, incredibly beautiful. I think the Cray 2, it was cooled by fluorocarbons and uh, had a, in your computer room, it actually had this thing where uh, the fluorocarbon tank, you would see bubbles coming up through it. Oh, wow. Wow. So at any rate, back in 1980s, early 80s, uh, as alternative supercomputer designs were appearing, Seymour Cray said, uh, if you were going to plow a, a field, what would you prefer? Two strong oxen or 1,024 chickens? <laughs> and, well, as it turned out, both in supercomputers and in big data, you want 1,024 chickens. <laughs> uh, current top-performing supercomputers have, I think, millions of Intel processors uh, to do their job. Yeah. It's also easier to replace a few chicken if they die, if they fail versus an oxen. <laughs> That's true. The analogy works all the way down. That's <laughs> really <true>. perfect analogy. <laughs> and 
Yeah, it, it's a case where, you know, Athena can just give you more chickens, right? When you create a redshift cluster, you're saying, I want eight chickens, 16, 32, 64, whatever. Athena doesn't tell you how it calculates, but I think it's based on the number of files that it's processing. And, you know, yeah, this, this particular query needs 128 chickens. This one only needs four. So uh, through across the board, I was just incredibly impressed by Athena's, uh, Athena's performance numbers. Where I think Athena might fall down a little bit, it can do it, but on a transformation pipeline uh, where you're generating intermediate tables from raw data. And Athena can do that, but now it's putting things in its own places. Um, that concerns me a little bit. They also give you a list of queries that Athena is not very good at, okay. uh, such as self-join windowing queries. Interesting. So that's one blog article I, I have us uh, posting in there in the chat as well. Um, the performance comparison of Athena versus Redshift. That looks like a really cool article. I Somehow I missed that one. I'm sorry, Heath. I'm going to check that one out. Yeah, okay. And then we have your deep dive on Redshift execution plans, which is kind of what we're talking about here uh, with a lot of detail in there as well, which is great. Another thing uh, I uh, wanted to yeah. call it, maybe you have it in your list. So I have so many more questions, but we don't have time today. And I'm sure many other people do as well. And Keith is going to be having a office hours um, where yes. we can get into data engineering strategy, AWS, et cetera. Um, I think it's pretty broad, right, Keith, in terms of what you're willing to cover? Okay. It, it's basically, unlike a traditional office hours where people show up, it's schedule an hour to talk. Okay. Is that the, oh, I don't know if we have that linked here. Yeah, we'll get that, that show is, notes. Uh, I think Becca just posted it in chat. Oh, thank you, Becca. Appreciate that. So, and while we're talking about this series of uh, data warehouse related posts, tomorrow morning I'm going to have a post. Why not just use Postgres? Yeah. Which it basically shows yeah. where Postgres, and I run it on. Uh, at, I actually wrote it a while back. I run it on a fairly smallish uh, RDS instance. But you know, there are certainly use cases where the data isn't big enough to justify spending, uh, what does it come out to, $6 per node per day for Redshift. Yeah, OK. Well, here's the page. Actually, it's easy to even mention by, by mouth. It's cherrysolutions.com slash office hours. Uh, and you have data engineering AWS office hours with you. So if anyone wants to talk to you, and certainly you're the person I would go to first on any data engineering, data-related issues, uh, you're just a font of knowledge, especially if you're dealing with things like, you know, AWS or other cloud structures and platforms as well, uh, reach out to Keith uh, through the Office Hours program. It's great. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Keith. Yeah, yeah, thank now you. I know, yeah. Now, I know we're going to go next week. We're going up to AWS Summit, which is a huge one-day event at the Javits Center uh, in New York City. Um, let me turn off the screen sharing here. And, uh, you know, so I know we're all going to be up there. And, you know, if you're going up there, you, if you see us walking around with chariot shirts or whatever, or whatever, you recognize our faces, run away. Um, <laughs> we'd love to talk to you. 
Uh, so we're looking forward to that. But that kind of tangentially brings up another topic. Uh, so I know three years ago, I think it is now, I went and I got my certifications for AWS, mainly because as, at the time we were partnering with AWS and we all wanted to kind of level up as much as we could if we wanted to kind of catch up a little bit. Um, and now that's expiring. And we're getting to the point now where we, some of us have to recertify. So in general, just to talk about certifications is always never read topic, right? So, and I could go way back in my career to my Sybase and Microsoft SQL Server certifications and you name it, everything else, Java certifications. And so I know it's a loaded topic. Um, you know, I, I think certifications certainly serve dual or multiple purposes, right? So one of them, of course, is in, you know, uh, in my opinion, one of them is like, look how many people are certified on our technology, right? So there's the company's perspective of the, of the technology company saying, look at this, we created a certification program, you know, all of our people are certified in it and maybe grandfathered in, depending on the person. And then you've got a ton of third parties, individuals, consultants that are getting certified. So certainly from the organization's perspective, as companies become real entities with living, breathing tools and APIs and platforms, it's something that helps them kind of show what the standards are at some level. Um, but I wanted to open up the topic on certifications in general and then also about just AWS certifications. My quick story on them, you know, and again, I used to teach. So one of the reasons I had to get certified was to teach official classes by the vendor. So for that kind of situation, it makes sense because you're bringing up a lot of, you know, a lot of topics around a technology that you're going to have to be asked in your training sessions and you don't know everything, but to get a good like breadth of background for most companies that have training programs, they try to make their, their certifications based on the training where they can. And so at least the two of those match up. But I remember many years ago, I was working for a consulting firm and one of the things I did a lot was vetting candidates. And the recruiter came in, she was psyched, and she said, we got to talk to this person. She's excellent. Passed, she had like all the Java certifications, she had like five Java certifications. And uh, you're going you're gonna to want to hire this person. And I got into the meeting, I asked her questions. She knew nothing. Every question I asked, there was always no answer. And then at the end, I said, Okay, thank you very much. She goes, don't you want to ask me more questions? And I thought, no. And I think there are some people that, and there are some organizations that try to get the, the badges and certifications, but they don't mean as much because either they crammed really hard to get the certification and they didn't use it, or the organization had a deal where it was easier to get certified. So there's the dark side of certifications. But on the positive side, I, I do think that specifically ABS certifications because there's 200 plus, probably now 300 plus services in AWS, there is kind of that background radiation you need to pick up. You know, so like the first level certification for AWS, the, was it the practitioner? practitioner yeah, cloud practitioner. Practitioner. Isn't bad to kind of say, did you know these things exist? And it's a little bit of a cram yourself to death with lots of terms, but you kind of get, you kind of get the topology of what, all the things AWS has involved, and you can start digging deeper into things. Um, like, what are your thoughts on like certification from a developer's perspective? If you, you want to jump in, and specifically, we can kind of narrow it down to AWS. 
So I'll kind of jump in. And first off, note that Chariot, as an AWS partner, has to maintain a certain number of people with certain levels of certifications. Right. Uh, personally, I've got the Solution Architect Professional, which apparently carries with it the Solution Architect Associate, and also a Security Specialty certification. Mm -hmm. And partly that's driven by uh, the partner requirements, partly it's driven by when Chariot talks to potential clients, uh, as with people with resumes listing certs, when Chariot talks to clients, I think it adds something to say, oh yeah, you know, we have people with specific certs. Mm -hmm. yeah. And looking at the solution architect professional cert, it's a challenging test, you know, helpful hint for someone taking it. One gigabit per second equals 11 terabytes per day. Uh, but it, it really <laughs> dug into uh, different architectures, such as, you know, when is it better to have uh, locally attached disk versus when is it better to use S3? whole bunch of things. I won't go into too much detail with that. But it, it definitely challenged your knowledge. But here's the thing. I've been using AWS since 2008. And I still, when I retake the certification test, and I did it again just last year, um, I've got a cram. Yeah. And it's because, as you said, there's some 200 services any any of which can appear on the certification test. Now, when it came to the security cert, that was particular cramming because I can talk IAM uh, policies day in and day out. But what's the difference between trusted advisor and guard duty? Right. <laughs> you know, I, I, now there are certainly people who are responsible for setting that up uh, who know that. Who could tell you that difference? And I suppose, you know, realistically, I just admitted that you should not hire me to set up your security systems. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, people have their specialties, right? You can do, you can work in 5% of the technologies in AWS and be very successful for a very long time. Right. So, like, how much breadth do you get in five years of work, 10 years of work? Right. You know, so, so I, I think, I think that other than the business reasons to go through the certification, I do think you have at least a chance to learn about new things. Mm -hmm. uh, it will take cramming, which means that you do not necessarily, you know, certainly a solution architect professional, I have the certification. That doesn't mean that I know every possible thing about AWS uh, deployments yeah. and structuring AWS services. But, you know, it does at least demonstrate that I've had some experience with some of those services. So that's my feeling. It's, does it help me? Does knowing that I have a certification make me a better developer? No. Yeah. So, John, do you want to give the business perspective on this? Oh, you're muted. Thank you. Um, 
two two angles or two perspectives. So one was you guys were talking about kind of like the the journey of learning, right? And so last year I started studying towards a solution architect um, exam and like did for about two weeks, and then I had to put it down just because there's too much context switching in my role. But um, I was studying just for the sake of studying for the certification, which I think is fine from a breadth perspective when you're just trying to get your hands around the map of AWS services, which is so large. Um, Huge. But I don't retain information well learning that way. So this year, um, for various reasons, I've been spending a lot more time coding and doing other things and getting deeper into AWS from the perspective of building something. That knowledge to me is, is like, you know, that's hard won or hard fought knowledge and that you retain much better. So even if it means I have to spend more time doing it over time because I'm not cramming for something, I personally would rather learn that way and then like, okay, I actually know this stuff can build an application or put put a workload up on AWS and then find, hey, okay, maybe I know enough now and I'll have to fill in the gaps of some cramming to take an exam versus cramming purely to take the exam. So I think I won't do it the latter way. I'll, I'll do it this this way now where I'm building something, learning, even if that means it's a longer journey because um, I'll retain the information more. Um, to yeah. your point about the, the business perspective, it's an interesting thing because, you know, generally I, I am of the opinion of I scoff at certifications or the number of certifications someone has, because as you pointed out, it doesn't really say that much about how you are as a practitioner or developer. Um, I think it's great if for folks that are switching careers or switching domains and like, hey, I need to learn some stuff really fast just so I can get my bearings and then I can delve into something further based off of my job role or what I'm interested in, I think certifications are great. Um, and it allows you to get your feet wet and gives you kind of a, a goalpost or something to, to say, okay, I, I have a specific objective I need to meet and I can justify learning this to try to achieve this thing. So it's, it's a confidence booster if you've been out of the game for a while or if you're switching careers, like I said. Um, so I think it, it, it's really helpful for maybe people that fall under those categories. And then from a business perspective, um, I, I, think, I think it's good from a marketing perspective. I think like the professional certification Keith has that, in my opinion, really requires a level of depth of knowledge of AWS because they're not just asking rote memorization. They're asking scenarios and you got to have to think about what's the optimal way to do this thing or that. So you have to, you have to know. I mean, I, my guess is you can't take the professional cert purely by cramming. Like you've had to have used yeah. AWS and built some significant application architecture on there. So to me, that's a valid, like a, a valuable exam. The other ones, maybe not so much more, more as a marketing thing and more as a, if you're getting your feet wet and learning. Like a baseline. Yeah. yeah. Of, of general knowledge. And I would agree. I think, you know, and I had the same feeling about certs way back in the job of days the whole J2EE certification, you know, it's like, a lot of us did this stuff before J2EE existed and we don't need no cert, you know, because we're doing stuff that stinking cert. We don't need no stinking cert. And we don't need uh, to do a whole bunch of entity beans because it's a garbage technology. I wonder <laughs> how many people over here. Like how many here. people at Amazon, AW, employees of AWS, how many certs can they pass? Which ones can they pass? I mean, I'm sure that varies a lot. That's and it varies question. on your role. A uh, right. friend of mine started in a solution architect role. And I see on LinkedIn when he's been adding new certs. Right. Of course, he has access to all the engineers that he wants. <laughs> That's for, we just use you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's a fair number of people at Cherry that do a lot of AWS. Um, yeah. But yes, yeah, certainly, I know 
it helps to have people experience to say, yeah, that's interesting, but this is the really important thing out of this. And so, yeah, I would agree. I spent a lot of time working on AWS projects for the last two years and learned a whole lot more just by kicking the tires that was practical I could use over and over again that way than cramming for an exam. But the cramming for the exam gave me a bit more baseline. Like some of the stuff around configuring your environment and working with this, the logistics of it, um, that I, it fills in the holes at the low level, but really learning by doing, I think a lot of people benefit I mean, look, much more. If, if ChatGPT can pass the bar exam, the MCATs, the SATs, the ACTs, my guess is it could probably pass a good number of the AWS cert exams. <laughs> so well, one more thing about this. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I do have one, one more reason to get certified. And that's if you go to the summits or reinvent, <laughs> there's the certified lounge. Which Pretty is, cool. you have to be certified to go in, but yes, it's cool. always snacks throughout the day. Is that and, like the uh, captain's lounge or the VIP lounge at an airport or something? Similar. <laughs> Same <laughs> idea. Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. So anyway. The, the real lounges are the executive lounges that I've heard oh. of from friends. Yeah. And then they go out and DJ on stage, which I noticed a couple <laughs> reinvents ago. One of the CEOs or whatever said, what, 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 what? It was really interesting. Um. Was that Andy Jassy did? I forget who it was, but one of those guys was up there literally doing DJ sets in the auditorium before the show. I'm like, okay. Um, but uh multi-talent. Talking about, yeah, talking about like just prepping for one of these things, like some of the techniques. Um, so uh, I know that there are practice exams. There's a very lightweight practice exam, reasonable, like small, that they have for each of the exams on the ABS site. I know that a number of us here, if you're in the if you're in the certification game and you're doing it, um, have used like Udemy courses. So they, they'll usually run a special. This is a tip for you. For like 25 bucks usually, they'll sell you like six practice exams. And um, I used one three years ago that when I went up this year and checked it out, turns out they've been updating it all this time. Is it exactly what's on the exam? No. Is it is it? 100% accurate, I don't know. It's pretty detailed. And they have a lot of, the, the best part about it is go ahead and fail it. Because the first time you take the test, unless you've been around as long as Keith has, um, you probably aren't gonna pass these exams right away. But what they do is they go through every single one. And for all the answers that you could have given, they dig into why it's a bad answer. And they tell you what the good answer was. They tell you which one you had which many times is incorrect. And then they have a bunch of links to resources. Mm -hmm. And going through those tests and then literally taking that output, putting it in a document, distilling it down to like a study guide for you, reading through all those resources that you can stomach reading through because there's a lot of them, will help you get centered for doing well on the exam. So to me, that's one way of studying that, that I found useful. I, I think that's a great way of studying. Again, recognizing that it's a lot of different information yeah. because it it forces you to look at the actual documentation. Yep. If you don't know what, what any of the answers to a question are, oh, yeah. um, then that's, say, that's telling you, hey, read the docs on this particular subject. Yep. And I'll make notes as I'm going through those reviews of things I don't know and I put all the services I haven't worked with yet um, and things that they're mentioning. And it seems like it's either BS or real strategy, you know, and I realize, Oh, three questions in, it's the same thing over and over again. And one of them is correct. You're like, Oh, that is the real thing. 
Um, I've done that. I've also done like mind mapping and outlining of things too. So like, you know, especially for that first exam where they talk about a billion services, putting all the services that you hear about together, grouping them by type, and then going into looking at each one and taking little notes. The more you write down and summarize something you've seen, the more it'll cement right. useful information in your head so that you'll do well. At least it works for me every time too. So um, just some thoughts. Also study groups. Sometimes getting together with groups of people, really, really helpful. Yeah. It, I think it's, again, you're being challenged of things you don't know. Yeah. And so uh, AWS, I'll just say, does have training videos. I've watched a few of them kind of yeah. to evaluate them for Chariot. Uh, they go into fairly detailed stuff and, you know, like many test-oriented training they say you should expect this on the test you won't expect this on the test mm -hmm. you can decide whether or not that's something you care about uh but they're there and they're free so um, and especially for some things you've never worked with before that's right having someone explain it to you at a higher level and kind of lay it out for you is a good centering point i think one last business perspective i have is um i think in for example i chariot um, when a number of folks took the exam and Keith did some training courses internally for folks. If you're an organization that's looking to get into AWS and you, or, and you or you have some developers that know it, but you need to teach it to other developers, I think the, the act of learning and doing the certification is a great impetus internally to get folks interested in it, eager about it, motivated, and saying, hey, let's, let's as an organization, become more knowledgeable about AWS. And I, I definitely think it had that impact at Chariot. So not from the individualistic perspective, but from an organizational perspective, I think it could have a lot of value that way. And I'll just throw out, we could turn that uh, internal training into public training for companies that are looking to make the step. Yep, absolutely. In fact, I have a little entry there on the training page for that, for if that comes up. Because I know we are at the point where we could do that semi-formally if we need to so excellent well that's this has been a good conversation it's been wide-ranging we've got a lot of good information uh you know talking a bit about redshift about the way it approaches fetching data and the execution plans for it um you know we talked a bit about this certification process and a little bit about different databases uh it's been a really great time with you again keith always always it's a great time having you on so really Thanks. appreciate it thank you keith always thank you fun. All right, everybody. So that's it for the Tech Chat for this week for Tuesday, July 18th, 2023. Visit us at youtube.com slash Chariot Solutions and look for the Tech Chat Tuesdays playlist if you want to see archives. Um, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Take care. Yep. Thanks. <laughs>